Welcome to Kidney Commute, brought to you by the National Kidney Foundation, driven by the interprofessional team with emphasis on the patient voice. In each episode, we will incorporate the perspectives of the different members of the kidney team as well as the patient. Join our huddle on all things kidney health and allow new perspectives to inspire collaboration in your practice. Eligible listeners can earn credit along the way. The Kidney Commute, a continuing education podcast planned by the team for the team. Welcome to the premiere episode of The Kidney Commute, an interprofessional NKF podcast. I am Dr. Osama Oshami, a nephrologist and assistant professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. I will be your host and one of the panelists as well. Today's topic will be the kidney health team. We will be discussing the different roles of the members of the kidney health team, how we interact with one another, and what things we can do to work better together and with our patients to help navigate patient care. Without further ado, please join me in welcoming today's panelists. Hi, I'm Dr. Kelly Beers. I am a practicing nephrologist and assistant professor of medicine at Albany Medical College in Albany, New York. Hi, I'm Melanie Terrawell. I'm a registered dietitian and certified specialist in renal nutrition with Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, New York. Hi, I'm Dory Minch, a clinical social worker with Wake Forest Baptist Transplant Department in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I'm Mary Rogers Sori. I'm an acute care nurse practitioner at Vanderbilt University Medical Center within the Division of Nephrology. Hi, my name is Mary Balaker. I'm representing the patient perspective. I'm a kidney transplant times four, my last of 22 years. i am also been on hemodialysis in center multiple times. I also have 25 plus years of experience working in healthcare. Welcome panelists. So I think uh, it's uh, probably best then to start with the patient's perspective, Mary Belliker. What is going through the mind of the patient when he or she is told that they need to see a kidney doctor? Thank you. I think as a new patient, it's the unknown, feeling scared, feeling helpless. When you're being told that you need to see a a kidney doctor, I think it's like, what does it mean that my kidneys are not functioning properly? You know, then I think the next thing is if, if it is a kidney disease or kidney issue, you know, can it be cured? Is there a quick fix? I mean, we all want that, right? How can I slow it down? How can I stop the disease? How can I get the function back? Again, I think it's that feeling helpless and not having all the understanding and just being scared. That's completely understandable. And then Dr. Beers, as the nephrologist who's seeing this patient for the first time in your clinic, what do you think is the physician's role upon first encountering the patient? Thanks, Dr. Eljami. I think for me personally, I really see my role is as an educator. I think a lot of patients will be referred to a nephrologist or a kidney doctor, and this is the first they've ever heard there's a problem with their kidneys. They're scared, like Mary mentioned, they have a lot of questions. Things as simple as what is a creatinine? What is your EGFR? Explaining what these labs mean. Unfortunately, chronic kidney disease is a mostly asymptomatic disease. So patients will be told they have kidney dysfunction and that's very scary to them. And they don't understand how that's possible because they don't feel anything. So I really focus on offering a lot of education, trying to explain to them what kidney disease is, what 
stage of kidney disease they're at, if I think there's a chance that there's something that we can reverse. We talk a lot about lifestyle changes. We talk a lot about the potential clinical course that they could be charting with this new diagnosis of kidney disease. Every patient obviously is completely different and the situations that get them into my clinic are gonna be different. And I try to really tailor my discussion to their specific instance. But really the first meeting, I'm trying to answer as many of their questions as possible and try to offer as much reassurance as I can that as their kidney doctor, I'm gonna help them the whole course of the way, even if that means guiding them through eventual kidney replacement therapy in the form of transplant or dialysis. Absolutely, no, that's, you know, that's great insight. And I, I do agree completely as a fellow physician that that is the role of the physician to guide the patient through this process and help them through it. Now, uh, Mary Belker, I'm sure there are a lot of questions that are going through the patient's mind, some of which, you know, Dr. Beers alluded to. So leading up to the appointment, right? What, um, what is the patient doing? And how does that affect what the patient is looking for from the nephrologist? When you're being referred to a specialist and you're having to kind of try to feel through and get through what the issues might be, I think a lot of times patients reach out to either friends, family, you know, do you know anything about this? I think the other is that they go on the internet, which can also be scary because they're not really sure what they're looking for. They're not sure what sites are, you know, the right sites to look for and that actually give uh, the information that they should be receiving. So, you know, not knowing what is a credible site. I think when they're going in to see that physician, they really want to know that that doctor cares. Um, they want to know, can they help them? I think the other is, is that for me, I know personally, I really need to have a personal relationship that I feel comfortable with them and being able to talk to them. I, I think, you know, not feeling that you're being talked down to or that you're being discouraged, but that you are in this together, that you are a partnership, that you're going to be part of that healthcare team with that physician. So I think those are all really important areas that when patients come in, again, they're feeling frightened. They want to know, can you fix it? You know, can you help me? And I think really making sure that, you know, you're not like looking at the computer, but that you're talking to the person you know, that you're looking at them, that you're communicating with them, that you feel like they're there for you, that they have this time for you. And those are really important things for patients. I think really looking at that relationship and that that first instance of meeting that physician is really an important one. And that's where it really begins that partnership with your patient. Thank you. I believe that's very important. And another thing that often comes to mind, right, seeing patients is, you know, the role of Dr. Google in all of this. And, you know, it, um, a lot of times it can be a source of increased anxiety for patients because, uh, you know, when you look, when you're looking for something online, it's very easy to find things that are alarming or that can scare you even more than you're already scared. No, thank you for that. Uh, keeping our focus on the outpatient side of things, Mary Rogers, as the nurse on the team, what kind of questions do you often get from the patients who see you prior to seeing the physician in the clinic? 
Thanks, Dr. Elshami. That's a great question. So I should say, uh, for a point of clarification, I'm both a registered nurse and a nurse practitioner. So I'm going to answer that question from the standpoint of the registered nurse. So similar to what Mary and Dr. Beers were saying, there's a lot of fear kind of of the unknown, especially if it's the patient's first appointment. They usually spend, we spend a little more time with the patients uh, simply because we are often checking them in, doing the intake vitals, doing the medication review and reconciliation. So lots of questions about, I think the most common one I get, is the blood pressure good? Uh, how's my weight doing? Especially for the follow-up patients, because we're looking at their blood pressure and their fluid status. Very often get asked about what we think of the doctor they're going to see. And most common fear is, is there, I hear is they're worried they're going to be told they have to go on dialysis. So those are probably the most common things I hear and then other just general medication uh, questions that we get probably the most common. Thanks for that. And do you feel like your relationship with the patients is different from the one that they have with their physicians? And if yes, then how so? Yeah, I do think that it is uh, a distinct relationship. Um, I do think that the amount of contact time, and I, I consider this a privilege from the nursing standpoint, that we get to spend cumulatively more time with the patients, especially in the dialysis clinic. So you get to know and build up a banter with the patients. I think from the nursing standpoint, sort of our training, a lot of it is focused on uh, kind of approaching the patient from a holistic standpoint. I think it's a very complementary relationship to the physician relationship as well, because we bring both the art, you know, the communication, but also the science and another word to say this, but it, it's a good mix of both worlds. And you get to really know these patients there, whether they're in the dialysis clinic or if they're coming to your general nephrology clinic, you get to see these patients, you know, very often, probably more often than they see their primary care providers. So I think the frequency of, uh, of the interaction helps build those relationships and you get to be with them on their trajectory, whether it's working towards a transplant or just trying to maintain kidney function. It's, it's a real privilege. It's interesting to see the spectrum of, you know, the patient experience uh, across the different providers on the kidney team. And one thing, you know, that I want to uh, come back to is something that Dr. Beers mentioned, right, about guiding the patient through the process. And, you know, part of the role of the physician then when the patient is there is to kind of help bring hope to the patient through understanding of these, you know, this complex concept of kidney function, of kidney disease. And we aren't always successful, whereas Dr. Beers alluded to, and sometimes some patients do require kidney replacement therapy. So Dr. Beers, some of these patients who don't recover their kidney function, as the physician on board, how do you approach those patients? Ideally, these are gonna be patients that I've been seeing for a while. So hopefully I've established that relationship that Mary was mentioning with those patients where they trust me, we have good rapport. And what I like to do is when I see that someone is approaching stage four chronic kidney disease, I begin talking to them about options if they are to progress to end stage kidney disease. So I talk to them early about transplantation options and I talk to them early about different dialysis modalities if they do need dialysis. We're very fortunate in the field of nephrology that if the kidneys fail, we can replace them. There's a lot of other organs where that's not an option. So that's a, a real benefit in nephrology. Um, the options aren't 
perfect, of course, and dialysis has a lot of drawbacks. There's a lot of change in quality of life, but that's why I like to start that conversation as early as I can. So I'm talking a lot with patients about dialysis options, about home modalities, about peritoneal dialysis, home hemodialysis. I try to help them get as much information as possible so they can decide what dialysis modality they think would work best for their lifestyle before they even are close to needing dialysis. That way we can be prepared so they can have a fistula in place prior to starting dialysis if they need that. They can have their PD catheter in place if that's the, the road, route they choose to go down. I also refer them to transplant as early as I can so that they can go through the workup for transplant and be prepared. So as soon as they're eligible to go on that transplant list, they've completed all of the workup, they've crossed their T's, they've dotted their I's, and once that GFR drops below that magic cutoff number of 20, they can get listed. If they have living donors, we try to get that on board as soon as we can so that if they can get listed and have a preemptive transplant, that's something we can do. It's harder when we get patients referred to us who are already stage four or stage five kidney disease. And it's definitely not uncommon to see a patient for the first time and have to tell them that dialysis is imminent for them. That's a really difficult conversation. Um, ideally, we can help educate our primary care partners a little bit better so they can do those earlier referrals and patients aren't necessarily coming to us on the brink of dialysis. But in that situation, it really, again, comes down to education. How much can I tell them about their options and get them comfortable with it? I also, if I can, will try to get them to meet other patients who have gone through something similar, because I think it's hearing it from me is one thing, but hearing from a patient who's had that similar experience is gonna be much more beneficial for people in understanding that they can still lead a normal life on dialysis or after kidney transplant. Great, thank and you very much. Dr. El I'm gonna now ask you a question. How and when do you approach the conversation about kidney replacement therapy? So I think that kind of fits well with you know, your answer. So, so to piggyback on some of the things that you said, um, I start the conversation with my patients once once they are stage four. So I look at, you know, it, once their GFR is less than 30, and I tend to educate my patients uh, about, you know, GFR, creatinine, they're on board and they understand, you know, that, the, you know, the higher the creatinine, the lower the GFR, and there are certain cutting points that we use to start the conversation. And one way that I explain to the patients as well is the fact that GFR isn't an exact science. There's no magical number at which, you know, I'm going to look at a GFR and say, okay, you need to start dialysis now. It's a pretty complete approach that incorporates many of the functions that the kidney is doing before you start thinking about kidney replacement therapy. So I like to break it down to my patients in three uh, categories. I tell them the kidney gets rid of the extra water in your system. The kidney helps manage your electrolytes and the kidney helps clean the blood. And, you know, if, if it's a question of removing fluid, we have medications to help remove the fluid, right? Um, and if it's a question of electrolytes, uh, potassium, or for looking at uh, bicarbonate uh, or sodium, we do have some interventions that we can do to help manage that as well. And I always tell them the one thing that we can't manage medically for our patients is the cleaning of the blood part, right? And one of the measures that we look at when we're assessing that is the blood urea nitrogen levels, right? Or the BUN. Um, and I tell them again, there's no direct correlation between a certain BUN number and the symptoms that they're gonna have. But then I explain the uremic symptoms to the patients of insomnia, of loss of appetite, of fatigue during the day, 
and the subsequent weight loss that the patients may have. Uh, those patients who then, uh, I believe, would, are going to require kidney replacement therapy, I discuss with them uh, the three options, which are conservative management, which I think is something that's important, right? I think patients need to also know that it's not that it just dialysis and transplant and that's it. There are certain situations where you explain those options to the patients and they're not ideal. So we explain conservative management where you medically treat as much as you can, but it's not, if it's not within the patient's goals of care to start dialysis or to get a transplant, that's something that we honor and we understand. Then when I discuss the option of dialysis, I like to split it between home options and in-center options. That's how I divide it for the patients. And then I kind of explain the pros and cons of each one to the patient, because yes, there is a push in the nephrology community towards increasing usage of home dialysis modalities, but we also understand that home isn't for everyone. And some, for some patients, it may not be ideal. Uh, and then finally, of course, transplant. And I do follow you know, a very similar uh, path to the one that you outlined in terms of trying to refer patients to transplant as early as possible, speaking to them about living donors and, and uh, being in touch then with my transplant colleagues. Thank you, Dr. Shami, for bringing up conservative care. That is such an important component of what we can offer as nephrologists. And it definitely gets overlooked sometimes, but um, I would just like to wholeheartedly agree. I have many patients that are CKD stage five and we're managing them conservatively because that's what's in line with their quality of life and goals of care. And uh, that's a very important option, especially for some of our older patients who have a lot of comorbid conditions who really wouldn't do well with either dialysis or transplant. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, Dory, from the social work side of things, my understanding is that your role begins when a patient is started on dialysis or if a patient is undergoing transplant evaluation. Now, before this patient comes to see you in the clinic, how do you normally prepare seeing, for seeing these patients for the first time? Well, thank you, Dr. El Shami. So it, it really depends on what context I meet the patient in. And um, as Dr. Beers had alluded to before, some of our patients come to us with no knowledge of their kidney disease before they start dialysis. Um, these patients often require me to hit the ground running um, and see where they're at and, and what it is that they need. I can read any note that's available, but the patient perspective on what they're needing in the here and now may often be very different. I may get a call from the hospital as a dialysis social worker telling me that this individual needs help with transportation or they need some home health assistance. And so we will make our best efforts to have that available to them when they start dialysis. Um, otherwise, working with family and support network and, and figuring out how we're going to get them to that first treatment, which is when their care will begin. It, from the transplant perspective, when we get a referral to evaluate a patient for transplant, I'll review their medical record. Um, if they've been on dialysis, review their social work assessment and see what types of supports that they have and make sure that we're emphasizing the importance of those after transplant. Um, and then if I meet them only in the post-transplant phase, just again, seeing where they are, making sure that they're understanding their insurance benefits and their out-of-pocket costs as, for, as far as post-transplant goes and ensuring that that support system and transportation resources are in place to make sure we're getting them to their appointments. 
The other large component of what I try to do is make sure emotionally they are healthy. So Medicare does require a social worker to be in the dialysis unit to address their emotional concern. But we all know that we can't address an individual's emotions if they are concerned about where their next meal is coming from or how they're going to afford their treatment. So a lot of the concrete needs really need to be required, need to be um, met and evaluated before we can even get to the emotional aspect of beginning a renal replacement treatment, whether it be known or come up as a surprise to them. All very important things and things that really make social work an integral part of the process of taking care of our uh, kidney patients who we see uh, and treat every day. Now, another important member of the team, of course, is the dietitian. And you know, I've, I refer many of my patients to the dietitian, but I tend to hear a lot that there's great variability. Some providers refer to dietitians a lot, their CKD patients and others are a little bit more conservative with that. And, you know, for that, we're fortunate to have Melanie here with us. So Melanie, when can or should a patient start seeing a dietitian? Yeah, so you you alluded to it a little bit. I think this is a great question because I meet a lot of patients starting out on dialysis where I am their first encounter ever with a dietitian. And I really hope in bringing up these questions and talking about it, we see a future where more patients are being referred to and seeing a dietitian before they start dialysis. I recommend that a patient see a dietitian as soon as they're diagnosed with CKD. And in terms of other comorbidities, if they have diabetes, hypertension, obesity, any other disease states that could lead to CKD, I, I would say the patient should and can see a dietitian. Medical nutrition therapy is provided to patients by us registered dietitians to help manage and treat these disease states. And in the case of CKD, if a patient is getting adequate nutrition um, and individualized nutrition, it can help delay the process of, or the progression of um, CKD and can even delay going on to um, dialysis or maybe holding off on having to ever be on dialysis. As the disease progresses, the dietitian is there to adjust the diet to help manage those mineral and electrolyte imbalances and any nutritional deficiencies that may come up with a pretty strict diet that the renal diet is. And so everybody knows medical nutrition therapy with a dietitian, it is covered under Medicaid for type one and type two diabetes and for patients with a GFR less than or equal to 50. And many insurance plans also will cover services with a dietitian with a physician referral. So I hope that more dietitians get into providing these preventative services in the outpatient setting and that physicians can and should refer to us as soon as possible. Absolutely, it's very important. I think one of the most common questions that I get from my patients is, what can I eat? What can I not eat? You know, is there anything that I should cut down on? And, you know, a lot of times I tell the patients, you know, there's a dietitian who I'll have you follow up with, who's their, you know, their whole role is to talk about this. And, you know, I think that there's a lot that uh, as a physician that we don't know about this. Now, when this patient comes to see you for the first time, 
how do you assess the patient's uh, nutritional status and what information is gathered and how can the team as a whole, right, all, all of us here, how can we provide uh, input uh, on a patient's nutritional status? Right. So nutritional status is basically how well a patient is nourished or maybe malnourished. A well-nourished patient has adequate nutrition, no uh, nutritional deficiencies, and they have better outcomes. So that's really what we're trying to get all patients to have adequate nutrition. The primary things that us dietitians watch out for when we first meet a patient is weight changes, especially any unplanned weight loss that a patient might have. And with starting, I work in dialysis. So especially with starting dialysis, that's something we see a lot. We also uh, look into if a patient has adequate nutrition, like I said, we use diet recalls and ask about anything from GI issues that they might be having to chewing and swallowing issues that may be affecting their intakes, their digestion and absorption of nutrients. We also do nutrition-focused physical exams to look into if a patient has any um, muscle or fat loss or any micronutrient deficiencies. We also are just screening for any factors that in the future may affect a patient's nutritional status. We rely a lot on the social worker's input, as Dory was talking about. You know, if the patient is having any issues with food or if their living situation isn't stable, this can affect their, their nutritional outcomes. And so we rely a lot on the social worker to kind of help us come up with a plan of care for that patient, maybe refer out to community programs that can help the patient, anything too from getting, helping getting us coupons for medications for the patients just to help pay for things and relieve some of the stress that they might have in their life. And then in terms of the physicians and doctors, or the physicians and nurses, I'm sorry, they really help us with managing, you know, the medications. Is there anything going on in their disease process or, of the medications that they're taking that might be affecting their nutritional status? Is there anything we can come up with together to improve the patient's care and quality of life? So nutrition is really affected by a lot of factors in a patient's life and having all the team members together and giving their expertise in this different situations just really help my assessments and help um, build rapport with patients and help them have better lives. Oh, absolutely. Those are all very important points and actually brings to mind a question that I'm sure you've been asked a lot, which is, I think a lot of physicians tend to emphasize the importance of the albumin levels. Right, in assessing patients' nutritional status. What are what are you what is your take on this issue of albumin? Yeah. So I mean we know now <laughs> albumin is not an indicator of nutritional status. It's an indicator that something might be going on with the patient, inflammatory processes, fluid overload. There's just so many factors that are influencing this albumin level that we really can't say a low albumin means they're not getting adequate nutrition. And the dietitians have a lot of things in their toolbox to assess a patient for adequate nutrition or malnutrition. And those are much better indicators. Um, like I said, like weight loss, 
intakes, the physical exams that we do, they just tell a much better story about a patient than their albumin levels. So that's, I mean, that's really where, what the research shows and what us dietitians now are trying to educate everyone on the care team about. And hopefully standards for care will change in the future to reflect this. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I think it makes sense, right? It's a more of a holistic approach to the patient. It makes sense that it's not just one value that's going to define you know, the entire patient state of being a nutritional status. Now, I think we've kind of gone through everyone who's uh, on the team with us here so far, and that can be pretty stressful for patients. So Dory, what are ways that you can assist or help these stressed patients, right, who are meeting the physician and the nurse and, you know, the dietitian, and then social work uh, comes into play? What are ways that you can assist and help these patients navigate their care? So I try to be as sensitively transparent as possible, meaning I don't feel that it's for a patient to have to sit around and wait to see how the flow of the clinic is going to go or the flow of the dialysis unit is going to go or figure out who to ask this question or that question to. So I try to give an overview um, to the patients of the role of each member on their team and also to assure them that it is a team that is working with them and for them and that even if they ask a question of a team member or ask something of a team member that isn't within their role, it will absolutely get to the right person. I attempt to normalize anything that a patient may be feeling. It is really unlikely that a patient is feeling something that um, maybe hasn't been felt by somebody else. But when we can put normalcy to those feelings, it sort of takes the power of the anxiety away for the patient. So I encourage them to talk about what's going on. I encourage them to share, you know, what is, what is the most important thing with you right now? One of the major things in social work is to try to be with the patient where they are and making sure that we're addressing what their needs are, even if our priorities are a little bit different. So, you know, working very closely with dietitians, you know, we know that we want to keep their labs under you know, control and, and, and especially phosphorus levels under control and, and work with the patient in the small improvements. We know that maybe if they're having issues, they won't have a big global improvement or patient that maybe has issues getting to treatment or signing off early for various reasons, working with the patient to get them to where they need to be, although it doesn't happen overnight. And then also trying to advocate for the patient with the team for the patient's needs and, and let the team know, you know, these are the barriers that our patients are having right now. Um, we are working towards a, a goal and a resolution, but it may take a little minute till we get there. So, you know, let's, let's be patient with the individual. Now, Dr. Al-Shami, we have talked about seeing patients for the first time in the kidney clinic. We've talked about transitioning to dialysis and transplant. What about the patients that recover their kidney function? For patients who you see in the nephrology clinic who recover kidney function, when do you stop seeing those patients? I think that's, that's a great question um, and an important one as well, because there are patients who are, we don't want the patients to feel like we're abandoning them, but at the same time, we want them to understand that if they do recover a kidney function, they don't have to continue seeing a nephrologist. So there are patients who have acute kidney injury who prior to this kidney injury had normal kidney function and they came to see us in the clinic and we were able to navigate through this and return their kidney function back to their baseline 
be it normal or slightly below normal. And in those patients' cases, it's, I, I oftentimes tell the patients that it's up to them to uh, decide. So you can either continue following with your primary care physician and get your uh, regular blood work with your primary care physician. In those cases, I make sure that they're educated and understand that what I'm looking at when I'm assessing their kidney function is their creatinine and EGFR levels. So I tell them, if you notice that there's any change in your creatinine or EGFR levels, send me a message. I'll be more than happy to see you back in clinic again. That's not a problem. For patients who do have CKD, who should ideally be seeing a nephrologist regularly, and you know, in my case, I have patients who drive two and a half, three hours to come and see me uh, in the clinic, those who have been stable for a long time, who have been following you know, two, three years, kidney function's been completely stable, I start offering them that option of, you know, I feel bad having you come here. Your primary care physician is five minutes away from your home. You know, follow up, let me know. We have the patient portals that we put to, to use where the patients can consistently send me messages about any questions or concerns that they may have, and they can send me their lab results. And then if there's a need to have the patient come back and see me in clinic, I'm more than happy to see them then. The last category in, that comes to mind are patients who had severe acute kidney injury that require dialysis. And those patients, all dialysis units have some sort of protocol that they follow with variations about monitoring these patients for uh, renal recovery. And all these patients afterwards should transition and start seeing a nephrologist afterwards. I don't advise that the patients who no longer require dialysis then just be sent to their primary care physicians, but the transition should be from dialysis to the nephrologist. And if they continue to show signs of improvement in their renal function and return back to their normal baseline, then we can go down the same path of not seeing the patients again. The issues that we see, and I think, you know, Mary Rogers, you can help shed some light on this as well, given your experience in both the inpatient and the outpatient settings, is kind of what is your, uh, what is your take on the differences in the experience that you see interacting with patients between those two settings? Yeah, that's a great question because it is really two distinct experiences, even if it's the same patient population, um, whether it's a CKD patient or, or an ESRD patient or somebody with acute kidney injury. I would say that in the clinic setting, the biggest thing that you have going, and this is an advantage, is that you, the frequency of the interaction, you get to build hopefully, you get to build a good relationship and you have time to discuss their trajectory, it's like Dr. Beers was saying, one of the worst things that can happen is when you meet a patient on the first day and you gotta tell them they start dialysis. You know, that's that's really tough, especially in the clinic setting, but it's tough in the hospital too. But most times we're lucky and we get to have frequency of interaction with them. And so that helps you naturally to build uh, that relationship together. Whereas when you're in the hospital, you know, you are walking in, to the room to talk to the patient and the family and they are one there there's many other teams that are there so they're meeting lots of people during the day it can be overwhelming um, in addition to them being physically sick 
and it's a, a usually a more acute presentation um, in that you're having to have discussions about often about dialysis, about whether to start like that day or not, or if you're talking to patients about someone who's got acute kidney injury, but has never seen a nephrologist before. First of all, just explaining what nephrology is, is can be a little tough. And it just, it takes time. The challenge on the inpatient side is, is the perceived lack of time. Okay? We actually have probably more time than we think in most scenarios. And in nephrology, Usually you don't have to make a medical decision right then there like you would during like um, an ACS protocol or during code. You do have time. So the biggest thing I have taught myself to do with these patients is from the inpatient side is to sit down when I talk with them. Um, that uh, And the outpatient setting too, that's really important to sit down if you can. I think that sends uh, a message that you're open listening and communicating, but also not giving the impression that you're rushed. Uh, it makes tough conversations go better. And even if it's a good conversation, that's always a good thing to do to make a patient or family or, or a colleague feel heard. Um, Sometimes uh, in the hospital setting, we, we have the benefit of knowing all of the data and can make a little bit more informed decision-making uh, or can order what we need to help the patient. In the clinic, sometimes it can be a little harder because you might not realize what you need until the patient leaves. Or it, it, So I feel like I'm able to answer more questions about prognosis on the inpatient side, at least when I'm first meeting a patient. And... Whereas on the outpatient side, I feel like the first visit, while it's very important, I think the second visit is usually where I convey the most information to the patient about what's going on with their illness and trajectory. So it's just a little bit different speed of process, whether you're dealing with the inpatient or the outpatient side. But um, the longevity of the relationships or, or the how long you're taking care of the patients is probably the biggest advantage to the outpatient. Like I said, it's sort of self impose on ourselves that we're short on time on the inpatient, but taking steps to slow yourself down and to really give the patient time. That doesn't mean you spend hours with them, but it's not, you don't have to be in and out of the room in just minutes. Take the time, make sure they understand and that they're here what you're saying. Because we're usually saying what needs to be conveyed, but maybe not in the way that the patient hears it. And it's a little hard on the inpatient side if you've got not known the patient before to know how well are they hearing you know, and then what are they hearing from the other team? Usually we're in sync together, but sometimes a little bit different messaging or just how you say it. So teasing things out like that is important. A hundred percent. I think that, you know, that that is a great point, which then takes me back now full circle to the patient, right? I think it's uh, fitting to end now with this patient's perspective, meeting all these members of, of your kidney team Mary Belliker, what is your impression and how do you feel this affects your outcome as a patient? I've been a patient for over 50, well, almost 50 years, um, which is a long time in, on the kidney journey. And I think one of the things about working and meeting the members of the team is that it can be really overwhelming to meet all of these different individuals and what role do they play within your healthcare. I think we've explained a few things, you know, talking about what the social worker can help with, how the dietitian can help, what the physician is, is explaining. And I think one of the big key issues for me 
is really about educating the patient so that they understand what creatinine is, what they understand what BUN is. I think it's a really important aspect to really look at the whole patient. And so I think having this huge team that kind of comes and meets with you can be, again, overwhelming. But on the other hand, it also can be a source of making a patient feel that they're looking at all aspects. They're trying to help me. They're trying to provide that overall care that we need as patients and looking at all avenues to make us have the quality of life that we need and we deserve. And I think looking at that, um, my impression really is how it really affects my outcome, I think is that we're looking at the whole person. You know, we're looking, can somebody get to their dialysis center? Can they get to their appointments? Do they have food at home? Do they have a support system? I think those are all very important aspects because it really gives us that quality of life that we want is, is trying to gather all the information to be there for the patient, to give the education that they need, that they, they get the correct information as well. I think, you know, sometimes as we were talking earlier is that Google might not be, you know, our friend and it might be overwhelming and there's no way to have somebody explaining it to us. But I think for us, when a physician sits down or the nursing staff, the social worker, and they explain what their role is in the care, I think that's the part that really is helpful for everyone to kind of look at what is the best way to get the whole wellness plan for us. And I think those are important aspects. I agree completely. I, I mean, we learned a lot from uh, today's podcast about the kidney team, the different facets and aspects that we all go through and assist the patient on this journey. So, you know, I'd like to kind of summarize some of the takeaway points uh, that I learned today, you know, it's important to talk to the patients, to guide our patients through this process and provide support for our patients, whether it's with information, whether it's with, you know, for like help with transportation, finances in terms of, you know, finding discounts or finding ways to make the, our patients care affordable for them. It's important to build trust and rapport with our patients. And that comes with spending time with our patients, sitting down when we're talking to our patients, multiple interactions with our patients and really getting to know our patients and building that trust and rapport is important to their overall outcomes afterwards. It's also important to evaluate our patients' needs and the needs not just financially, but also a support system and help provide our patients with emotional support when they need it. We also learned about the role of diet and how it can be important in, important in delaying the progression of kidney disease um, and the importance of referring our patients to see dietitians when they have a diagnosis of CKD. Uh, some of the differences between inpatient and the outpatient experience but it all goes down to the same idea of building this trust and helping the patients and guiding them and uh, the importance of patient education. And finally, while it can be overwhelming to our patients seeing so many different faces, it can also be a source of reassurance and comfort for the patient that the patients know that they are not alone through this journey and that 
here are all these professionals whose sole purpose in this journey is to help you go through it. And that's kind of where the issue of Dr. Google comes in because when the patients log in and they look up some of these issues, it can be very overwhelming because it's just you and the computer. And you're gonna be jumping from one thing to the other and you're not gonna know what to believe, what not to believe or how serious your condition is. But we are all here to help you through that process as the patient. And I think that that's an invaluable lesson for us all and a humbling lesson really for us all as members of the kidney team and understanding how important us working together really is for patient care. Thank you very much all for your time. And I hope you learned from this as much as I did.